area of debate among scholars, so legal experts and scholars, that putting to aside, there's no need for um, for the president of Switzerland, I, I believe, to to uh, have a private dinner with Ahmadinejad, who represents not only incitement to genocide vis-a-vis -vis the Israeli Jewish question, but also the, the horrific human rights violations that are taking place within the Iranian domestic uh, context. I, I just don't understand why on uh, the eve of Yahushua, on the day of Holocaust, the eve of Holocaust Memorial Day, that the president of Switzerland of all countries uh, entertained Mr. Ahmadinejad. Uh, Monday was actually a bit of a circus. It was the busiest day of the conference, and when the delegation arrived, there was a bit of mayhem. I actually found myself in a corridor with uh, Ahmadinejad and his entourage, uh, which was interesting. They sort of walked by me, and they went into a, a, a hallway to, to go to the plenary session, and the guards uh, closed the door, and I was left in the corridor with about 50 people from his entourage including the Minister of Foreign Affairs um, of Iran. And I actually shook his hand and uh, uh, basically told him that the whole world is watching and one day he'll probably end up in jail. But uh, <laughs> it was an interesting moment of exchanging uh, greetings. But um, the, the thing that really shocked me, there were two things that shocked me. After he went into the, to the plenary session, there were 50 people, and I was the, one of the few outsiders of this group. These are leading civil servants and bureaucrats and politicians. They started to chant Allah Akbar and other jihad chants, which I didn't understand. And it was something I'll never forget. They were screaming as if uh, somebody was trying to harm them or kill them or they were in pain. They were screaming. I've never seen adults scream with such fervor and energy something in my life. And um, I was just watching in disbelief. I was with a, another friend of mine from Israel. She ran away. She was terrified. But I stayed in the, and listened and, and actually spoke to people afterwards and had the opportunity to exchange ideas with um, some of their media correspondents and other uh, diplomats and uh, people. And I asked them questions about Israel and the Jewish people and all that sort of thing. And I had wonderful exchanges. And I, I would just say that coming away from these very sort of rational discussions about Judaism and Islam and the future of Israel, the future of the Zionist entity, all I, I would have to say is that the things that we read about, and I'm sure we're going to actually hear about it today in, in Esther's um, paper, in terms of Holocaust denial and perceptions of Israel and perceptions of uh, the conspiracy, as we had in other sessions, the sort of the protocols of the other design and the whole narrative as a view to see the Jews, to see Israel, is very much real and very much alive. Even over coffee and having rational conversations, they really, I, I would say from my rational mind and I guess from my heart, that these guys are the real deal. That they mean what they say. They're really out to destroy the state of Israel and the Zionist entity. And they really believe that Jews uh, fabricated or exaggerated the Holocaust to conspire to expropriate money from, uh, from the Europeans to go and build the state of Israel. That this is how they see the world. This is what they really believe. And I, I think they believe that they're actually going to do something positive by ridding the world of this problem, i.e. Israel. So. Um, 
So on, on that level, it's actually quite um, helpful in terms of my research and the, and the things that I'm concerned about because it's one thing I suppose to read uh, historical accounts or sociological accounts or uh, you know ideology and sort of social theory and all the stuff that we're engaged here in ESA, but actually to meet people who are connected to the regime in Iran and have honest and open conversations with them was um, an opportunity to really understand the mind of the enemy. And I believe that they are clearly the enemy. And they, are, they know exactly what they want to do, and they're out to achieve it. Um, I'd say two, two small other quick accounts that I'll give you. I think for the first time in uh, the five or six years that I've become engaged in, the, in this issue of anti-Semitism, of contemporary anti-Semitism, I'd say for the first time, I am really optimistic. And I'm optimistic because of the students that were present in Geneva. They were mainly Jewish and Israeli, Jewish European and Israeli students who came to about 100 to 150 students who were quite educated, aware, they were strong, they, uh, they acted as a, sort of in a selfless manner and they're helping people and helping each other. They knew the issues, they're well read, they're energetic, they're out to organize, they're out to bring awareness, they're not apologetic. And I think that something began in Geneva, I think their experience in Geneva just reinforced their whole, the whole idea of what they're trying to now struggle for, to end not only anti-Semitism and not only the, uh, the denial of uh, Israel's right to exist and the Holocaust and all of this stuff, but they also ended up meeting with dissidents from Iran and dissidents from other parts of the world. And there is a natural coalition of people um, of all sorts of backgrounds that are, are now very much working together, starting to work together on this extraordinarily radical form of Islam. And it was really wonderful to see. I also had meetings with people from the organization of the Islamic, uh, Islamic countries. Uh, mainly from Africa, and um, they are also extraordinarily concerned about the rise of radical Islam and, and Iran and the mess in the Middle East and how it's beginning to affect their societies. And I think there's all sorts of natural coalitions that are beginning, maybe percolating, uh, to, to emerge. And I think I'm very, for the first time, I'm optimistic. I think there's hope um, that's beginning to, to develop, to confront from these, this social movement, which is very dangerous. Um, and not just dangerous to Israel and Jews, but dangerous, perhaps most dangerous of all, to the people that uh, this movement, uh, their fellow citizens and uh, the people that they dwell next to, the people they go to mosques with, the people that they work with, that the, the pressures that moderate, average, everyday people are under is increasing, and I think they're, they're the ones who suffer the most. So, there's a, so this was good. Um, I spoke on the day of Yom HaShoah inside the UN on a, on a panel. I spoke twice, but on the day of Yom HaShoah, I spoke on a panel that dealt with issues of racism and genocide. And it was a group of people from, from Pakistan, Canada, myself, uh, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, from Africa, Rwandan, Holocaust, or sort of genocide survivor. And when I spoke, I, uh, there was a lot of Iranians in the room, actually, they came to hear me, apparently, and I asked for a moment of silence. The fact that the United Nations was created in the whole of human rights legislation and uh, 
laws and conventions and treaties emerged out of the ashes of the Holocaust that brought to the fact that we were in the United Nations, the building that was created from the ruins of the Shoah, that we would take a moment of reflection and meditation to, uh, to think about the victims of uh, the Holocaust. And I asked for everybody to stand and um, to have a moment of silence. So of course, I, I kind of knew this, the Iranians in the room, and there was also people from the Terracotta, the, um, the ultra, the small Jewish sect of people in Torekarta. There was two people from this group that were also there. So the Iranians and these two so-called rabbis uh, didn't stand up. And uh, we had a moment of silence. And then I explained in my speech why they didn't stand up. And they didn't stand up because they think that the Holocaust is a lie. They think that I, who would think about commemorating the, the victims of the Holocaust as part of the Zionist Jewish conspiracy to extort money from Europe and so on. And I sort of went into the whole discourse and the whole uh, idea of the protocols of the elders of Zion and how Iran uh, and other forces in the Islamic world are now in the business of exporting this horrific form of genocidal anti-Semitism uh, in, in the narrative of the protocols of the elders of Zion and how it's having an effect. And I also I would say that in terms of uh, the global influence of, of anti-Semitism and the protocols, on the one hand I think it was a victory what happened in, in Geneva, that uh, Iran and uh, the, the, the hate fest against Israel was thwarted. It was successfully stopped, if not stopped, almost stopped. But at the same time, we have to be, I think, aware that the, the fact that Ahmadinejad came to the United Nations and he was the only world leader to come to the United Nations, and he spoke of Jewish power and he spoke to Western power and dominance, and he spoke about the clique of people that's destroying society, that this horrible form of anti-Semitism and the fact that he spoke at UN and had this pulpit uh, to spread it will have an effect because the people who are dispossessed around the world will see him as somebody who is, if not, if not misguided, but somebody who has their interests at heart or is the only one to speak to power uh, in the UN and all the European white countries which are controlled by the Jews and all that conspiracy theories will resonate in some parts of the world uh, in, in this new cycle and it will have an effect. So on the one hand there's a, I think a victory, but on the other hand the hatred of anti-Semitism is being dispersed and diffused throughout the world and Ahmadinejad used the world's media this week at one level effectively uh, to spread it. So we have to become, we have to be aware that the, these processes of anti-Semitism uh, continue in a very serious manner. We have to, as scholars, really look at the reality of this in a, in a, in a very uh, serious way and to use all of our resources and our interdisciplinary expertise here and in other places to really try to grasp what's happening and what are the ramifications of, this, uh, of these events and of these narratives which are now spreading in the age of globalization. So, a victory, but uh, very serious issues. So, on that note, and I guess in a, in a very strongly connected way, we're very privileged to have uh, Professor Esti Wedman here today. 
She's going to speak about continuity and change in the Arab Holocaust discourse. Um, currently, Professor Webman is the acting director of the Stephen Roth Institute for the Study of Contemporary Antisemitism and Racism at Tel Aviv University. And as most of you probably know, there's, there's four institutes uh, dealing with antisemitism in the world. We're the, the newest and smallest. And then there's the uh, Technical University of Berlin. And there's the Vidal Sassoon uh, Center at Hebrew University. And the one at Tel Aviv University. Um, Professor Webin received a PhD at, from Tel Aviv University. And she reached, and she won awards for uh, her, her thesis, or, uh, her thesis was received with great distinction, which focused on Egypt during the uh, on Egyptian society and its response to the Holocaust. She has many publications, and the most recent is entitled, it's a book entitled From Empathy to Denial, Our Response to the Holocaust, which was written with Professor Mayor Litvak, also of Tel Aviv University. So welcome and cultural weekly at the time and was dedicated to Stefan Zweig. This is unthinkable today. Although the time frame of the story is set in World War I, the implication for World War II could be easily discerned. The hero of the story, an Egyptian scholar, describes a visit to Vienna 20 years after he completed his studies there. While wandering around the city, he enters haphazardly a coffee house where he used to sit and meet with the mythological figure, Jakob Mendel, the bookseller, who sat there every day, always ready to share at length his knowledge with others. In an attempt to trace the fate of the man who captivated him with his unique personality, <coughs> The author interrogates a cloak, an old cloak, cloakroom lady, and she recounts Mendel's life from his arrival to Vienna from the East until his tragic death. She tells the scholars that with the outbreak of war, two unidentified soldiers, but unmistakably Germans, according to how he presents them, burst into the coffee house and took him away, and he went missing for two years. Due to complaining letters 
that he sent to publishers in France and Britain for not receiving a book or a periodical on time, he was suspected of maintaining contact with the enemy and thus taken to a concentration camp. Upon his arrest, it was discovered that he never bothered to arrange his permanent Austrian nationality papers. It is unclear what happened to him in the camps at the author, although, and I quote, the world had witnessed lately the horrors of the book. After his release, Mendel never returned to his former self, and his physical and mental situation had badly deteriorated, the old lady, lady said. He became strange and repulsive. A few days later, he stormed into the place again, bewildered and agitated, and on that night, he died. But Mendel left behind a small book that the lady had kept, although she does not read and write. She showed the book to the narrator, and he identified, identifies it as a prayer book. Filled with remorse for forgetting about Mendel all those years, he praises her and asks her to preserve the book because our friend Mendel would have been happy to know that at least one person from the thousands of those who enjoyed his kindness still remembers him. Another Egyptian literary monthly a year later published a short essay by Egyptian-renowned author Ahsen, describing a trip by boat from Alexandria to Beirut via Haifa. On the boat, he met displaced Jews on their way to Palestine. They were weak, he wrote. Children, girls, and women who lost their husbands and all they had, even the slightest and all they had, even the slightest hope. Some of them had lost all, but life was flourishing inside them, enlightening their wounded heart with hope and despair, satisfaction and love, comfort and pain. Hussein asserted that those immigrants were enforced on the inhabitants of Palestine, and there were other places that could absorb them better than Palestine. Does this sound uh, familiar? But he felt compassion, on the other hand, toward them. Seeing them off the boat aroused in him, as he said, anger, outrage, pity, and sorrow. This essay apparently angered many Egyptian intellectuals who thought that Hussein was repeating Zionist propaganda. Yet others considered it as an example of Egyptian intellectuals' ability to differentiate between Zionism as a political movement and ideology and Judaism as a religion and between their antagonism towards Zionism and their sympathy toward the persecuted Jews. These are two examples of the early references to the Holocaust in Arab papers after the war. While the first story expresses a clear empathy with the persecuted Jew and recognition of the universal cultural heritage he left behind, the second, despite its unhidden compassion, already illustrates 
the entanglement of politics with the issue of the Holocaust. The idea that the displaced should return to their original homeland or absorbed by other states, such as the US and the British Empire, was raised by officials in the deliberations on the future of Palestine, as well as in the public discourse. Undoubtedly, and I quote, a solution has to be found for the Jewish problem. But colonizing Palestine is not a solution to the universal Jewish problem. And it would be unjust to demand solely from the Arabs to solve it at their expense, was a frequent reaction to the political developments. The basic Arab approach toward the Holocaust stemmed from the standpoint that it does not concern them. It was a tragedy of another people which took place outside the Middle East and they were not involved in causing it or perpetrating it. Yet, allegedly due to it, they were dealt an injustice and were forced to pay the price, the wrong which befell the Jews. The price meant the loss of Palestine to the Jews. If it, is not, if, if it was not for the Holocaust, Israel would not have come to exist. The proximity of events and of World War II with the urgency to solve the Jewish problem and the establishment of the State of Israel led to their convergence and the creation of a causality relationship between them. As a result of this conviction, the Arabs could not separate the attitude toward the Holocaust from their attitude and animosity toward Israel and Zionism. The resistance to the establishment of Israel as the solution to the Jewish problem overshadowed their ability and willingness to acknowledge and sympathize with the Jewish tragedy. It was an instinctive reaction which was gradually buttressed by ideological, political, and even cultural genes. I'm focusing on the early period from the end of the war to 48 because it was unique in its diversity <coughs> and exposed a whole range of attitudes towards the Holocaust. It was during this period that the conceptual foundation was laid down. Three basic approaches could be discerned in the Arab leaders' references to the Holocaust during this period. One recognized the Jewish tragedy, but sought to separate it from the question of Palestine and present it as an international humanitarian problem in whose solution the Arabs could take part. Thus, it was possible to express compassion for Jewish pain together with unequivocal rejection of Jewish immigration to Palestine and of Zionist political goals. Such an attitude was congruent with the aspirations of Arab elites to be integrated in the post-war world order and with their awareness of Arab dependency on Britain and the US. The second approach sought to understate or minimize the meaning of the Holocaust 
by using ambiguous terms or depicting it as a problem of civil discrimination, going as far as partial or complete denial. The third accused the Zionist movement or the Jews for what befell them. The, whole, the Holocaust became a matter of growing concern to Arab leaders following a range of consecutive events, beginning with President Truman's proposal on 16 August 45 to allow the immigration of 100,000 displaced Jews to Palestine, the establishment of the Anglo-American Committee on 13 November 45, and the subsequent recommendations, as well as the formation of UNSCOT, United Nations Special Committee on Palestine on 15 May 47, which led to the resolution on the partition of Palestine on 29 November that year and the establishment of the State of Israel on 14 May 48. The question, what Arab leaders and intellectuals who influenced and shaped the public discourse knew is critical for examining their attitudes and representations of the Holocaust. The evolving 45-48 discourse clearly shows that there was a flow of information and certain knowledge about it existed, at least among our Arab intellectuals and politicians. The Arab press, and particularly the Egyptian, covered the developments in Europe, including the fate of the Jews, quite extensively. The interest and reference to the Jews under Nazi rule did not stem only from the narrow prism of the evolving Middle Eastern conflict. Arab interest evolved at least among those agents of culture who led the public debates from a sense of affiliation with the victorious camp and its cultural values, a position which Islamist writers, most notably Sayyid Qut, who later became the spiritual leader of the radical Islamist, Islamic movement, often criticized for the unjustified trust in Britain and the US. Report on Arab advances and the horrors that they encountered in the Nazi camp, or the coverage of the Nuremberg trials, were not unusual. The same could be said in reference to the Jews. Yet, due to the political developments, this flow of information had been gradually suppressed to avoid a clash with the war efforts against the Zionist enemy and its state. The claims raised in relation to the Holocaust stemmed from the intensifying political disagreement over the fate of Palestine. They were a reaction to the unfolding reality perceived as a violation of an existential, a cosmic order, and as a result of Zionist Western cooperation and a plot against the Arabs and Islam. They attempted at maneuvering between acknowledgement of the Holocaust and the undeniable information about it pushed them aside. This was obvious in the official as well as in public discourses which strived as much as possible to separate the solution of the Jewish problem epitomized in the need 
to settle displaced survivors and the Palestinian problem. Once the linkage between the two problems was made in the recommendation of the Anglo-American Committee and the subsequent UN committees and resolution, discourse shifted toward blurring the meaning of the Holocaust, ignoring it, and shaking off any recognition of its human aspects. In its reaction to Unskop's recommendation, published on 31st August 47, calling for the partition of Palestine into two states, a Jewish and an Arab, the Arab public debate ceased to express any compassion for past Jewish suffering, making only few allusions to the past Jewish harmonious life with the Arabs. Two points assumed ever-growing importance, the accusation of inflating the scope of the persecution of the Jews in Europe by Zionism to justify the claim over Palestine and extort the world's conscience, and the argument that the Jewish state would not provide security to the Jews in general and to Middle Eastern Jewry in particular. The recommendation was seen as a further violation of the principles of justice and legitimate right and a mark of disgrace on the forehead of human justice. Could the world, which fought the Nazi tyranny and founded the United Nations, agree to the results of that awful partition, wondered our writers. Another emerging theme was the equation of Zionism with Nazism, ideology, aspirations, and practices. A leading liberal Islamic thinker who was a harsh critic of Nazism before and during the war made a systematic effort to equate Zionism with Nazism. The Jews, he said, were among the first victims of the gangs famous for their brown shirts. And the irony of history is that this type of gang regime had disappeared from Germany and all other parts of the world, except Palestine among the Jews. He also pointed to the similar Nazi and Zionist desire for world domination and warned the Zionists that they might end up as the Nazis. The struggle against Zionism became a major component in the public discourse of all ideological trends and an integral part of national identity and commitment for national liberation. Arab intellectuals perceived the need to confront Zionism as an existential challenge. The debate over the Zionist movement, its ideology, its political ambition, and its nature focused on the allegedly racist aspects of the Zionist ideology, which reflect Nazism and fascism. The need to find a national home for the Jews were compared to the Nazi call to persecute the Jews, and the Middle East was described as the living space in the Zionist ideology, which corresponds to East and Southeast Europe in Hitler's view. Zionists controlled the financial and economic markets as well as the world media it had been claimed, and therefore they posed a political and economic threat for all Arab countries, 
I'm afraid, concluding why, con concluded one writer, that Hitler was the Jews' disciple who learned racism from them. This representation of Zionism radicalized on the eve of the establishment of Israel. It was described as the hair of Nazism, exceeding Nazi chauvinism in its zealous nationalism. The purported belief in the notion of the chosen people designated by God to rule other peoples, which reflect the superiority of the Jewish race and its ambition to control the world, was also compared to the Aryan, Aryan races' superiority conflicts and Nazi ambitions. Therefore, according to this logic, the clash between them was inevitable. Another motif that emerged already before the end of the war and became more prominent after the war in Palestine was the equation between the fate of the Jews and that of the Palestinians thereby minimizing the scope of the Holocaust and transforming its victims into criminals equal to or worse than the Nazis. Imposing a Jewish state on Palestine exceeds in its tyranny and aggression the greatest crimes carried out by the Axis states. And Al-Arami Ditoyer wondered if anyone could imagine a time in which the Jews, who had been subjected for generations to harshest oppressions and tyrannies, would do the same to others. The Zionist efforts to dislodge people from their homes and disperse, and disperse them constitute the same disaster which the Jews had experienced. In the coming years, all the scenes which were identified in this early period were developed and came to typify the Arab representation of the Holocaust. Although they did not constitute a systematic, coherent narrative, one can discern a trend moving from recognition of the event as a human disaster which the Arabs were ready to share its burden to alienation, justification, relativization and denial. Arab preoccupation with the Holocaust focused on its political ramifications and hence instilled the notion that Arabs had to bear the brunt of deeds perpetrated in Europe by Europeans, causing what they considered as an even greater disaster. The diversity of voices was substituted by tendentious discourse that increasingly utilized the Holocaust as a tool in the rhetoric against Israel <coughs> and Zionism. In the course of my work with Dr. Meir Litva, we have discerned several major themes. One, empathy and acknowledgement. Two, justification. Three, denial. Four, alleged collaboration between Zionism and Nazism in the extermination of European Jews. Equation between Nazism and Zionism and between Israeli policy toward the Palestinians and Nazi policies toward the Jews. Relativization, inversion of victim-perpetrator dichotomy, and the representation of the Palestinians as the real victims of the Holocaust. 
I want to show you now few caricatures on the Holocaust and uh, which show some of these things. Do cancel, do cancel, do cancel. Okay. Um, I must say that uh, till the early 90s, there were rarely caricatures about Holocaust. But the only thing which appeared before that was the equation of Zionism and Nazism. Here I have a collection from later year because they were easier to. As you see, this is one of the things, and there are different caricatures comparing and equating the Tom David and the Spastika. Uh, this is a, a Jordanian newspaper from 2003, as you see. And uh, this is Gaza. And uh, in the caption, uh, there is uh, the Gaza Strip, or the the, uh, not even concentration camp, but the annihilation camp, uh, is the Israeli annihilation camp. Big love affair. And this is an Egyptian magazine. You can you, you see that uh, uh, most of all I, mean, I picked up uh, caricatures which come from different sources, from different countries. The motif, the motifs are the same motifs, unfortunately. Um, Palestinian. <coughs> I'm Palestinian, you see, uh, this, there is nothing, I mean, it is clear. This Latouf is a Brazilian caricaturist, and he is much more uh, sophisticated than the regular uh, Arab country caricaturist. And his caricatures after the last war, during the last war in Gaza, were taken and shown in almost every country and every site. There's also an Iranian cartoon competition. Yeah, I will show you this Yeah, he, uh, just mentioned the Iranian competition. Uh, it was declared just after the Muhammad, if you remember the, uh, the crisis after the Muhammad, the, the Danish characters uh, or cartoons about Muhammad. Ahmadinejad's uh, response was uh, to have a contest on the Holocaust. And this was the first prize. Uh, I think there is nothing to explain here. It was a American um, young fellow who won this prize. Uh, apparently, uh, there were more than 
1,000 submissions for the contest, and um, I will show you a couple of them. Um, and uh, after the uh, the contest, they had they had in Tehran two weeks uh, an exhibit of uh, 200 of those. <coughs> this was another one. You see. Again. Uh, Al-Hayat is one of the most liberal papers in the Arab world. It is published originally in Lebanon, but it is published in London today. And again, this is from 2001, and uh, there is no need to explain anything. Very similar one appeared after this during this war. You see Carlos Latouf again. This is another one. Um, this is very interesting. It's, uh, it's published in a site uh, which was uh, uh, somehow identified with Hezbollah. And as you see, we're talking about six million Jews murdered in cold blood. Well, we never get over it. And this is, of course, an American media on both sides. On the other hand, six million Palestinians ethnically cleaned, dispossessed, murdered, and humiliated. Well, get over it. And again, this theme reappeared after during this war, again by Kairos with the book, never again and over again. Palestinian tragedy and the Jewish tragedy, as I said, one of the major themes. Um, perhaps only the last one by Latouf, um, which is again here. I could go on, but I will stop here and continue. The Holocaust representation in the Arab public discourse has not changed until the mid-90s. Despite the vicissitudes of the conflict and the political, internal, inter-Arab and international arenas, there was no difference between the academic and the official or popular discourses, which was reflected in an ever-growing volume of controversial literature on Jewish history, Zionism, and the Palestine problem. This literature did not introduce new insights to reinforce previous themes. Yet there was a shift of emphasis from the justification claims to all variations of denial, a trend which also typified Western revisionist literature. Soviet and revisionist discourse has an, had an impact on the development of the Arab Holocaust discourse, especially after the Six-Day War of 67, when the Soviet penetration to the Middle East was at its peak, and Holocaust deniers became more outspoken. Yet, the 67 war 
brought in its wake another development. It created for the first time after 19 years a direct encounter between Palestinians and Israelis, which reinforced the unique traits of the Palestinian response to the Holocaust. In his novel Returning to Haifa, written after the 67 war, Palestinian novelist Hassan Kanafani describes the journey, a journey of Palestinian refugees, a couple from, from Ramallah, Saeed and Sophia, to their home in Haifa in search of their son Khaldun, left behind as a baby in their flight in 48. Arriving in Haifa, they discover that the house had been occupied by Holocaust survivors, Miriam and Efrat Goshen, who also adopted and raised their son. The encounter between Miriam, the widow whose husband died in the previous war, and Saeed and Safiya raises several dominant themes in the Palestinian discourse on the Holocaust. Acknowledgement of the historical event, comparison between the Jewish and the Palestinian sufferings, and the portrayal of the Israeli soldier as useless as the Nazi soldier. It was the first time that an Arab novel introduced an encounter between a Palestinian and an Israeli Jew, not on the battlefield, but in a normal room, where each of them puts forth his point of view and discusses it with the other. It is significant that this Jew was a Holocaust survivor, who had the potential of identifying with the Palestinian agony in view of his or her own experience. The representation of Miriam stems from the awareness that the Nazi wars indeed took place. She arrived in Haifa when, with her husband on the eve of establishment of the state, and she's a decent, sensitive, and human person. She is presented in contrast to the Israeli soldier, as she was perplexed, he says, by the behavior of the Haganah members, whom she saw throwing a body of an Arab child onto a truck like a piece of wood, reminding her of her father's death in Auschwitz and her young brother shot dead at the hands of German soldiers. Those thoughts, which she never disclosed to anyone, and the arrogance exhibited by Saeed eh, and Safiya's soldier's son, this, eh, who was totally immersed in Israeli culture and rejected his biological parents, bring immediately to mind the recurring theme, the equation between the Israeli soldier and the Nazi soldier, and in the broader sense, between Zionism and Nazism. This equation was stressed after the 67 war with the Israeli occupation of Gaza and the West Bank and the shift in Israel image from an underdog to a Goliath. The Soviet propaganda, the European left's criticism of Israel and the UN 75 resolution defining Zionism as a kind of racism intensified the use of this motif for the legitimization of Israel and Zionism. Israel and Zionism were accused of ignoring the Palestinian tragedy, despite what befell the Jews in the Nazi era. They were expected to be more sensitive to the suffering of others, 
since they themselves were subjected to horrible sufferings and the Nazi persecutions in Europe were said to be exploited for the justification of the per of, of, and the persecution of another people. The victimhood motif crystallized as a central theme in the Palestinian national narrative, as it was a major component in the Israeli and Jewish identity. The Palestinians considered themselves as the victims of the victims and strove to acquire a status, a victim status, and recognition of their tragedy with all it entails in rights for self-determination and restoration of justice. This, themes, this theme appears in other Arab discourses on the Holocaust, but the trauma of the displacement and loss was unique to them. And therefore, its representation is so central in their discourse and collective memory. The accusation of Zionism of collaboration with Nazis was raised immediately after the war, received a boost by the Eichmann trial in, er in the early 60s, and since the mid-70s was supported by academic works inspired by Soviet perceptions of the Holocaust and Zionism. In the mid-90s, however, in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the signing of the Israeli-Palestinian Accords and the Israeli-Jordanian peace agreement, liberal Arab intellectuals began to question the Arab perceptions of the Holocaust, which seemed no longer congruent with those processes. They called for the unequivocal recognition of the suffering of the Jewish people, which eventually would lead to the recognition of the Palestinian tragedy by the Israelis and facilitate reconciliation and coexistence between the two peoples. The gist of, the, of this new approach is the acknowledgement of the Holocaust as an undisputed historical fact, a crime against humanity, and the separation of its human aspects from its political repercussions. <coughs> the new approach was affected by the terminology and attitudes to the Holocaust in the West as Holocaust denial and other motifs of Holocaust representation in the traditional Arab discourse partially derived from Western and Soviet literature. The propagators of the new approach live in the West and are highly conversant with its culture and values. They generally advocate a change in the Arab <coughs> attitude toward the Holocaust and do not deny its uniqueness, although most of them failed to isolate the political dimension from their discourse, despite their declared aspiration to do so. Seeking basis for coexistence, Edward Said claimed that a link exists between what happened to the Jews in World War II and the catastrophe of the Palestinian people. And unless this connection is recognized, there would be no foundation for coexistence. Said, who accused Zionism and Israel of instrumentalizing the Holocaust for their ends, falls into the trap of instrumentalization by connecting the recognition of the two tragedies. Although he insisted that he does not attach conditions to the comprehension of and compassion for the Jewish tragedy, he believed 
that such an advancing consciousness by Arabs ought to be met by an equal willingness for compassion and comprehension on the part of the Israelis and Israel's supporters. The Holocaust does not excuse Zionism for what it has done to Palestinians, he went on to say. Hence, by recognizing the Holocaust for the genocidal madness that it was, we can then demand from Israelis and Jews the right to link the Holocaust to Zionist injustices towards the Palestinians, link and criticize the link for its hypocrisy and flawed moral logic. Despite its relative limited number of propagators, this approach brought about changes in the representation of the Holocaust, even among its opponents. It diversified the mainstream discourse while increasingly confining denial to Islamists. The vantage point of discourse of the discourse returned to be, as in the early period prior to the establishment of the state, the acknowledgement of the Holocaust as a horrible historical fact and by without relinquishing other persistent themes, such as relativization and minimization of the Holocaust, creation of Zionism with Nazis, as we saw, and the accusation of Zionist collaboration with the Nazis. And this diversification of the discourse was mirrored in a few literary works and television dramas. To rest my case, I would like to conclude by showing you a short segment of an Iranian TV series, Zero Degree Turn, broadcast a year and a half ago. The Iranian production was an aberration for, from Ahmadinejad's denial of the Holocaust. The series was written and directed by an Iranian producer, and Holocaust denier Roger Gamadi served as historical advisor. It included 30 parts and reportedly became a hit overnight. Set in the, in the 40s, Iran under Shah Reza and Paris on the eve of World War II, it presents a glimpse on Jewish life in Iran and on the persecution of the, of the Jews in France with the Nazi invasion. Loosely based on a true story, according to the producer, in which Iranian Shalzeda Fair in Paris saved over 1,000 European Jews by forging passports and securing them refuge in Iran. The hero of the series, Habib Parskan, a son of an Iranian former diplomat married to a Palestinian woman from Haifa, finds himself involved in saving Jews from the Nazi clause. He is sent for studies in Paris, where he meets Sarah Struck, a young Jewish student as they collaborated in research on elements common to Spinoza and an Arab philosopher. And it seems of Jews with the yellow star of David getting on tracks for search by Nazi officers, Khabib falls in love with Sarah. He gains the, the trust of her maternal uncle, history professor Shmuel Weiss, and uses his work at the Iranian embassy to forge passports for Sarah and her mother and secured their flight to Iran. Notwithstanding its discrepancies, historical distortions, and ultimate anti-Zionist messages, the series constitutes a break not only with Iran's image 
as a denier of the Holocaust and supporter of Western deniers, but also with the Arab general evasion of films on the Holocaust. Even Hollywood films dealing with the Holocaust, such as Sophie's Choice, Schindler's List, Life is Beautiful, were rejected as another Zionist propaganda ploy and banned in Arab countries, even in those with which Israel has established peace agreements. The recognition of the realities of the Holocaust in the, in the Iranian drama doesn't excuse Zionism for what it has done to Palestinians and does not give Israelis a blank check to abuse them as Edward said. <coughs> Indeed, the Iranian historical drama recognizes the Holocaust as a horrible event, but at the same time, it does not depart from the traditional themes and present the Jewish state as a Zionist invention, the result of collaboration between the Zionists and the Nazis to coerce Jews to emigrate to Palestine. Therefore, it is an alleged illegitimate entity and has no right to exist. It also reinforces the similarities between the discourse in the immediate post-war period and the discourse that emerged with the new approach. Then, there was an effort to separate between the Jewish problem and the Palestine problem, which enabled to acknowledge the historical facts and even express sympathy with the Jewish tragedy, and at the same time, denounce Zionism, its ideology and practice. With the turn of the 20th century, the mainstream discourse accept the occurrence of the Holocaust, but strive to challenge its uniqueness and its hope, and to de let, let de legitimize Israel and Zionism. Thank you. Just showing up.
فکر میکردم تا به هر برگشتی و تنش یه شرسی به تشکر افتاد سارا مادرش کن خونه ای که از دوستان غیر یهودی پنهان شدم منم که حد برداشتن یه سری مداره که اومدن اینجا خانه خوبستان من برای شما خانوارت و خارج خونه هم بهتر از اینجا بریم ناجیه دارن خونه ها رو برای شناسایی و فرستادن یهودی ها بردوگاه کار اجباری نگردن بریم Theme within the series received. 
Uh, as I, I said, that the, the series was received uh, very well in Iran. It was really a hit, and people really kept <coughs> seeing it every day. It was mm -hmm. it's, it's a three, 30 part series. Mm -hmm. uh, how this particular theme was received, I cannot really, I really don't know. It wasn't really a distortion. You said design is distortion. It's not a distortion. It's not knowing yet. I mean, uh, Holocaust studies still many uh, uh, many researches and studies are done, and you yeah, always I'm find ways. By presenting this as the Iranian and Arab involvement with mm -hmm. the Holocaust. It's and then and, and I'm sure that there must have been some discussion in the press about the fact that general histories of the Holocaust do not include this, and they don't. I will tell you, they don't. They don't include, but now there are in different places that people are researching the Holocaust of the Libyan Jews, what happened in Morocco, a book on on. Uh, the uh, North Africa uh, just was published uh, a couple of years ago by Robert Satloff mm -hmm. and uh, in fact uh, uh, one of the names he mentioned there was uh, a candidate for receiving so the awareness to what happened, first of all, to the Jews and to the cooperation uh, and to uh, the assistance of Muslims during the Holocaust is growing. There was a, a, um, a Muslim mufti in the Grand Algeria, mm -hmm. in the Grand uh, Mosque in uh, Paris, who, who saved about 1,000 Jews okay. in his mosque. I'll, I'll so, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Was there a second part of the film that showed in contrast with the Yeah, it's all that, yes, exactly. Really? You yeah. could already notice here, but I didn't want to it. Uh, you have the good guys, the Jews, and the bad Jews. And the bad Jews were Zionists. And uh, during the series, when they show for so you will say, I mean, in the series you can see uh, those who came in the car and were inspecting the place were the bad guys who wanted to uh, get documents from that uh, Jewish professor who had documents about Zionist, about alleged Zionist Nazi cooperation. And so this is one scene there, I mean, this is one uh, stream in which uh, the construct is being built. The other is in Iran itself. They showed how the uh, Iranian Jewish community was striving in Iran and uh, uh, with the infiltration of Zionists to the community, uh, uh, they destabilized the Jewish life. They killed, they murdered the Jewish rabbi and so on. So you could see on both sides, both things. But what I encouraged which was really an admiration, as I said, was that the first few scenes which we saw, which really brought the Holocaust home to India that was never seen anywhere in the Middle East before. 
You mentioned that after the Oslo Accords, there was a sort of change in attitude. People began to accept there was a Holocaust. It's not people began. Yeah, I said that there was a change among certain intellectual circles, and they brought about a change in the mainstream discourse. Uh, whereas you don't really accept the crude denial of Ahmadinejad. And, and since that time, when everybody's hardening on both sides, has there been a reversal again? No, it's not. It's not reversal. It is there. There, yes, surely their voices are less prominent. I mean, there were never too many, by the way. But they wrote a lot, and they got people to answer, to respond, and there was a lively debate, debate in the papers on different occasions um, where where the Holocaust came up, even as a response to Ahmadinejad's statements when he first started to make them when he became a president. You could find those who uh, identified with him and uh, uh, said that uh, he is really, uh, he is the voice of us and we are not, uh, and we are only afraid to express these views, whereas there were others who denounced him, and quite a few, like exactly as it happened now, there were a few who denounced the, uh, his speech in the UN, in the Geneva Conference, of course, because they understand that in many ways he is really harming their cause with such with such statements. So if I can make a point, also when I was in Geneva, I met with uh, Berber organizations from Libya, mm -hmm. Algeria, and Morocco, and they spoke. I, I was, it was shocking at some levels because I spoke a lot about the history of the Holocaust and how their families actually helped to save Jews in North Africa and how the regime, the various regimes, teach uh, sort of the Arabization of their culture and the Islamicization of their culture and how the perception of Israel is taught as children were, that they were, in their educational system, they're taught to hate Jews in Israel but there sort of seems to be some sort of, I don't know, an awareness or a renaissance particularly among the Berber community and their, their view of Israel, their view of the Holocaust, is, is, uh, it was shocking. Do you, do you, are you aware of these sort of trends in North uh, African society? Especially among the Berbers, definitely yeah. among the Berbers. They have contacts with Israelis all the time. Yeah. And, um, and as I said, it's not only there, there are few And uh, there are few, but they have the capacity <coughs> to somehow influence at least this course. And uh, I don't know if it will bring about a, a, an absolute change. I'm not that optimistic, but something is there. So, so just like I said, my, my point, it, was, is there a, there seems to be a space between the regime and official ideology and official policy, and then on the ground, people have, you know, diverse ideas and perceptions of, of these issues. So, do you have, yes. can you gauge how, <coughs> there's, the, there's the official line which we know about? And no, there's no, the, I cannot, you cannot talk, I, uh, you cannot talk about an official line, there is no official line. I mean, general. In terms of curriculum? Curriculum, you don't refer to the Holocaust. You don't. Sorry. You don't teach the Holocaust, 
you don't refer to the Holocaust. Even when, when you talk about World War II, you hardly mention that. And I have few books for it from Egypt and Syria. And um, uh, 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 whenever it is mentioned, it is mentioned in connection with what happened in Palestine. So as I said, it is politicized from the very beginning. You cannot, you have no details, you have no stories, you don't accept the Zionist or Jewish ethos or the, the, of the, or the Western uh, historiography about the Holocaust. That's what you see in the press, that's what you see everywhere. But you don't teach, you know, in the, on purpose that there was no Holocaust or whatever. The only place where today people are, when they are engaged in writing books on Holocaust, eh, on Holocaust, denying deny the Holocaust, is in Iran, unfortunately. There are few books in the Arab world as well, because with the trend of accepting the Holocaust, as I said, since we got a, not a reverse, and we have a group of people who went to the other side, uh, demanding to deny the Holocaust, and understanding, thinking that recognition of the Holocaust is not congruent with the Palestinian rights and self-determination. It's, it's a contradiction. If you have this, you cannot have that. But uh, again, this, those are mostly Islamists. And just one final point before I ask the question. Two weeks ago in UNESCO, uh, there was a major project that was launched, uh, Project Halloween, yes. uh, by the Shoah Foundation. Yeah. And many Islamic countries are present. There are 3,000 people, mostly Muslims from Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. And they're translating books like Prima Library's books and other books into Arabic and Persian. And it's um, a great success. And President Wad of uh, Senegal was there. And he said, the Holocaust denial is a war against the Jews, and a war against the Jews is a war against humanity. So it was very powerful yeah. meeting. Very good. So there's good things happening. Uh, yes. And that, yeah. I, I uh, in fact recommended to a Rakim review of the next. Okay, very good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I, so one comment, one question. Uh, so first, you were talking about the, how they're influenced by the uh, communist narratives about the Holocaust. Just something that I work on and I'm interested in. But so there's also the separation between good Jews that are not Zionists and, and bad and bad Jews that are Zionists is also very common in in in, commun in the way communists present right. Holocaust and Jews and saving Jews. And it's just fascinating. And watching this film has just reminded me of that. There are the religious Jews, good Jews, you know, the represent true Judaism, and then there's the bad Jews, the Zionists. And so my question is not related to this at all. You were also talking about the Israeli-Palestinian encounter in, in Israel. And I was also thinking of maybe the way, or what you think about, uh, maybe the way the Palestinians also construct their narrative about what happened to them is also influenced by the way you know, Israelis or Jews construct their narratives, you know, and, and this mirroring of, of, of exactly. tragedies and things. Yeah, you, I can uh, give you an article that I just wrote about this topic. <laughs> 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 oh, story. Yes, definitely. There is a new book coming up, uh, edited by uh, Mayor Litvak, and there I have a, 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 a chapter on uh, 
the Holocaust and the Nakba. This is directed at you. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Go ahead. In the next uh, few weeks, there's going to be an election in Iran. What is the feeling of the young people? Will they vote against the president or perhaps throw him out of office? Maybe it's part of the wish. It's part of the wish, probably. Yeah, well, I'm not an expert on Iran, but of course I yeah, follow up as a scholar of there are those Iranian youth who will not like Ahmadinejad. And I, there are not few, yeah, quite, quite a lot. But nobody knows, and apparently the support of the um, Khamenei and uh, uh, the council of experts uh, who are more conservative uh, will probably, will probably influence the votes. I mean, probably you will win. There are Israelis, by the way, and others who think it's a very good thing that he continues to be in office because he does us a service. I am not sure I agree with this, with this approach, but this is an approach exists. I was thinking there's a dissonance in the, in the uh, film is that people are not stupid and they look to compare people walking in the street in Europe, let's say, without wearing shadurs, compared to what they're now. They're comparing if they're good Jews or bad Jews. Maybe they're good Iranians or bad Iranians, especially if they have access to the internet. No matter, I think the internet would be more powerful than, than the printed book. Right. And this stimulates thinking, even though it's a, a, a drama or a better sort. Is there any feedback on that? People come and ask questions. People come and ask questions. People on the internet have interactions with Israelis. So, but again, you have this kind of people. It's a very diversified and interesting society, the Iranian society. And you can find very diverse uh, range of opinions. The unfortunately, the ruin. Uh, during your talk, I, I guess uh, I was contemplating the question of Holocaust denial on one side, and I'll call it the pure Holocaust deniers. Uh, and on the other side, uh, groups who recognize that the, the Holocaust did take place, but are concentrating on the propaganda question 
of, of stating that uh, the Jews, the, the Palestinians are now the Jews, Jews, you know? Uh, and I'm thinking, this is what I'd like to bounce off you, I'm thinking, at least from the Arab-Israeli conflict point of view, that's, I think, maybe more damaging uh, to Israel to deal with that uh, than a plain Holocaust denial, which I think most of the world uh, accepts as something you know, on all the table. I agree with you. And uh, as a matter of fact, this was a major, a major theme in the reaction to the, the recent uh, Israeli uh, operation in Gaza. Uh, and it's not only Arabs who used the equation of the Palestinian tragedy as a sort with, with the Holocaust and using Holocaust force to describe what happened there mm -hmm. and what's happening in uh, in Gaza or the West Bank and you are definitely right. Uh, this European, even even I mean, Europeans accept. They don't see it as we see it mm -hmm. as a uh, as anti-Semitic or anything wrong. And we have to not really take this into consideration. Okay. Um, I have a related question. So one of, one of the uh, possible uh, responses to, to the Holocaust is, well, the Jews deserved it, you know, because, because they're, they're uh, uh, so bad. Um, so in the, the current equating uh, Israel with the Nazis, uh, you know, is part of that uh, do you see much of, well, Israel's just like the Nazis, so they deserve what happened to them in the, in the Yeah, they will, uh, uh, no, uh, no, this, this is really to, uh, to make a kind of, uh, uh, so it's sort of backwards. Yes, it's, no, it's not. But, uh, uh, but it's, uh, uh, as I mentioned, what I said, uh, the end of Israel or the, the fate of Israel will be like that of the Nazis because this is the fate of tyrants. Mm. Um, uh, but you're right. You are going to ask something else about the justification of the Holocaust and the justification of the Holocaust was not necessarily connected with Jews or, or Israelis being Nazis, but Jews as being corrupt, Jews as being um, 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 with, uh, with double allegiance, uh, Jews as uh, being uh, not loyal to their countries, and that, in fact, in a way, they accept the German narrative about the role of the Jews against Germany. Is we have time for one more? I did have a comment about something you said. You mentioned you were surprised that the president of Switzerland entertained the president of Iran. I may have an explanation. 
don't know if I was surprised, but I didn't think it was appropriate. <laughs> An Iranian friend of mine, Dr. Mahmoud Novash, who frequently traveled from Tehran to Nehaven, he was a medical resident here, noticed that after the revolution, if he took a flight from Tehran to Zurich, coming to the plane at the last minute in Mercedes were mullahs with attaché cases obviously going to Zurich for a specific reason, and that was to deposit funds into accounts in Zurich. So that may be the explanation for the economic cordiality of the president of Switzerland. I suspect you're correct. Um, do you see any, any relationship between those who uh, accept the fact of the Holocaust versus those who do not, and those who still believe in a two-state solution, and those who believe in a one-state solution, which means the end of Israel? Not really. Uh, no, not really. Uh, among those who um, uh, who propagates the idea of the one-state solution was, for instance, Azlid Sharap, Israeli MK, is now in uh, somewhere in, in where in Geneva. Uh, he was in Geneva. Okay. Uh, uh, he, he, he never denied the Holocaust. On the contrary, he was, uh, he, he wrote about it, I think. He wrote the first piece ever on a, a representation of the Holocaust. So, and, uh, and uh, he um, criticized, in fact, the, the denial of the Holocaust by the Arabs and tried to explain it. Uh, he connected uh, that to the, to, to the instrumentalization of the Holocaust by Israel and Zionism. And he saw Arab reaction as a reaction to this instrumentalization. So it's not necessarily so. People who recognize the Holocaust, and many of them propagate the idea of one, a one-state solution. The both parties. They agreed on that. Yes. Uh, one space, they say it in a different way, of course, but uh, you cannot read really it by the point of this. So, on behalf of Lisa, thank you very much, Esti, for <laughs> and, uh, A quick announcement. Um, today was the last seminar, so the seminar series for the academic year is finished, so. We don't see some of you. I hope you have a good summer, and the seminar series will pick up again in September. Uh, we have a big conference coming up on Tuesday, next Tuesday, the 28th of April. It's entitled "The Psychological Impact of the Threat of Contemporary Genocidal Antisemitism: From Denial and Paralysis to Understanding the Challenge." And it's uh, it's going to be a very interesting. Uh, symposium full-day conference with leading uh, scholars of psychology and psychiatry trying to look at the, the impact of contemporary antisemitism and uh, responses or lack of responses to it. So it should be a good day. It starts at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday morning in Nelson um, 101. It. it goes throughout the day, so if you can't be the whole day, you're very welcome to sort of come in and uh, the day unfolds. 
So I hope to see you there and have a great summer if we don't see you in the first Thank you.